What if our lives were marked with a joy that exudes confidence and determination and assurance and praise? Would that make us markedly different than the people around us? Folks, the book of Revelation is about patiently and faithfully just getting back to basics. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Let's read together from Revelation chapter 13. The Word of God is given to us through the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. Listen now to God's Word. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but that fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and the dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He has given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like the lamb, excuse me, like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark 
on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number. His number is 666. Question for you all. What do Saladin, the Pope, Mussolini, Tojo, Hitler, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Barney the Dinosaur, a big computer in Belgium, barcodes, and a heavy metal song by Iron Maiden. What do they all have in common? Well, at some point or another, someone has identified those folks or those things with the beast of Revelation 13 and its number. Okay, so how did we get here? How do we get to a point where we think that we have to read the events of today into the Beck Revelation in order for us uh, to get anything out of it rather than looking more deeply for the actual messages and principles in which the book would convey to us and then apply that for today? How do we get to this spot? Well, here's what happened. As the early church grew and moved out of the Greco-Roman world and away from its Jewish roots in the Middle East, the church's ability to understand this book diminished as well. As Pastor Richard has mentioned several times, the book of Revelation belongs to a distinct genre of Jewish writings called, begins with an A, tell me, apocalyptic. And apocalyptic uses a rich variety of symbols and images to convey what God would have us know. So here's the thing. For those who knew and understood these rich original symbols and images and what they meant, and those from a Jewish background steeped in apocalyptic and in the Old Testament, they would understand these things, okay? For these folks, the book of Revelation would make lots of sense. For those who did not understand this way of thinking and writing, well, this book can come across as baffling. And for some of us, when we read it, We're pretty much mystified by it a lot of times. And we're not in bad company in that regard. Richard said that there are two general approaches to the book of Revelation that are prevalent today. The first one is this. It's basically to ignore the book. Ignore the book because it's just too tough to figure out. And again, I think many of us are in that category. And the reason why I said that you're in good uh, company is because this was the approach of John Calvin. John Calvin is kind of the father of the Presbyterian movement. And Calvin wrote a commentary on every single book of the Bible except for one. Guess which one? Revelation. And I don't think it's because he ran out of time, right? This despite the fact, by the way, that the book of Revelation is the most Presbyterian book in the entire New Testament. Inquiring minds want to know? Uh, You're just going to have to hang on that one. So, 
That's the first approach, just to ignore the book. The second approach is the one that I've been talking about uh, this morning a little bit. And that is to read into the book the minute details of events that are occurring today. And by doing this, we then make the book relevant for us. The problem with this last approach is that it violates the most basic rule of interpretation that we use with every other book of the Bible. Namely, that a passage or a book of the Bible can only mean today what it also originally meant for those it was first intended. Does that make sense? In other words, it can never mean today what it never meant in the past. One way to determine uh, what any passage of Scripture meant in its original context is to ask of it what are called the interrogative pronouns. Okay, those of you who know what the interrogative pronouns are, raise your hand. Oh, there's a few English teachers out there. Say them with me. Who, what, where, when, why, and So let's apply these interrogative pronouns to the book of Revelation for just a quick moment. Who's the who? The who is John and a group of believers who lived under the Roman Empire. What? What is the actual content of the book? And we'll get to that in a moment. Where? Where is the seven churches in Asia Minor that are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 at the beginning of the book? The when is around 95, 95 AD near the conclusion of the reign of the Roman Emperor Dimension. And the how refers to the style of writing that is used. And this is the biggie, right? Because here is when we begin to think and consider apocalyptic literature with all of its unique ideas and vocabularies. So let's start. First of all, colors. Colors are highly symbolic. For example, in Revelation chapter 6, we have what are commonly known as the four horses of the apocalypse, right? So here, the first horse is white, and in apocalyptic, white symbolizes victory, not peace. Symbolizes victory. Red refers to war. Black connotes a lack of something. It could be light, or it could be food or health. In this case, uh, Revelation 6, it refers to famine, a lack of food. Pale, or actually in the Greek language, greenish-gray, represents death, or the color of a corpse. Then there are animals. Animals or beasts refer to nations. Heads or horns on beasts refer to rulers of nations. So let's look back at Revelation chapter 13 and, and work back through Part of that starting at verse 1. It says this. The dragon, that is Satan as we learn from Revelation 20 and other places. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Now what comes next is a composite of the four beasts mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. That also rise out of the sea. Now in John's day, Rome was the greatest power in the world. Uh, in fact, the greatest power the world had ever seen. So it makes sense that in this vision, John would roll all of these beasts into one, Rome. And he says it had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, 
and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And John moves on in verse 3 to one of the heads of the beast. Now remember, heads represent rulers. All interpreters at this point agree that here in this context, John is talking about the Roman Emperor Nero. You all remember Nero from your studies of classics and these kinds of things. Nero was the first Roman Caesar to declare open season, open season on Christians. Uh, one of the things he did was this. Uh, Roman historian Suetonius, Tacitus, others talked about how Nero would throw garden parties at night and he would skewer Christians on the ends of poles and then light them on fire to light his gardens. Yes, Nero was a wonderful guy. He, uh, he butchered Christians in other ways as well. Christians were scared of Nero. He died in 68 AD, but there was a common belief among many in that day that he was still alive, but had only been wounded. One day he would come back in the form of a, of a second Nero, and for these Christians then, in that era, that meant Domitian, who was the Roman emperor when Revelation was written. So John continues this way in verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like this beast? Who can wage war against it? So John continues in verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter profound words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. Don't forget the number 42. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So once again, notice this reference to 42 in verse 5. And let's look, for, look at numbers for just a moment. Numbers in apocalyptic writing are very important means of communicating theological truth. So let me go through a few numbers for us. First of all, the number 3. Three represents things connected to the spirit world. Three and a half is the number that designates the period of time when God allows evil, in effect, to run amok before God and his Messiah wipe it out. Four refers to things created to the, uh, refers to things connected to the created order. Seven represents perfection a completeness or maturity. Ten refers to inclusiveness or a, or a totality of things, a completeness. Twelve designates the people of God. You may think of the twelve tribes of Israel and these kinds of things, the twelve disciples. So, for example, let's, let's look at this now. The number 1, 144,000, okay? And this number is mentioned in Revelation 7, 4 and 14, 1. 144,000 is a multiple of what two numbers? 10 and 12. So when you put this together, what do you get? A number that just means all the people of God. Now, interestingly, 
Six is not an apocalyptic number. It doesn't show up in any the other literature that we have. So, what's up with that? Inquiring minds want to know, right? Well, of course, in Revelation 13, 18, we have the number 666. Uh, the verse says that this number is a different kind of number, though, than all the other numbers we've looked at. It says it's the number of a man. And for those who know how to do the math, you can figure it out. So let's talk about ancient math for just a moment. This is when it gets deep, folks. I had a lot of fun with the teenagers downstairs with all this. Before the invention of Arabic numerals like we use today, one, two, three, four, the numbers, the Jews, the Greeks, and the Romans all used to use letters to designate numbers. Now, back in the day, in the old days, we all learned Roman numerals, right? Remember those? All right, this is what I'm talking about. Roman numerals are not numbers at all, are they? What are they? They're letters. Letters like X and M and L and V. Some of you all having flashbacks now, I know it. Well, again, the Hebrews and the Greeks, they did the same thing. They associated letters with numbers. This association of numbers and letters was called gematria. And it was kind of a game that the ancients played uh, using numbers and letters like this. There was also this well-known technique back then of adding up the letters that comprised a person's proper name, adding those up together so that they created a number. Okay, so just hang with me for just a minute. It's, we're going to get more technical in just a little bit. But before I do that, I've got to mess you up a little bit more. Are you ready? Some of you may have study Bibles. And in the notes on those study Bibles, uh, comments on Revelation 13, 18... Uh, you'll see a note that'll say something like this. Some ancient manuscripts have 616. Actually, the oldest manuscript we now have of the book of Revelation, it was found in Egypt, and it reads 616 instead of 666. You can see the red arrow there. It's actually pointing to the Greek letters that indicate uh, 616. Now, what's up with that? Using gematria, if you tally up the Hebrew letters of Nero Caesar guess what you get? 616. All right, so where does 666 come from? Well, here's the thing. Um, unlike the Hebrews, the Greeks did not like the sound of a proper name to end in a vowel. So they habitually added an N sound represented by a new at the end of the name. And if you add the letter new, which equals 50 in gematria to Nero Caesar, you get this. Neron Caesar. And that's where we get 666. Folks, that's all it is. The same name, just pronounced two different ways in two different languages. 666 has nothing to do with barcodes. <laughs> nothing to do with a big supercomputer in Belgium. You can't even get Barney the Dinosaur or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles out of this thing. Remember, the true meaning of a biblical text is always tied to what God originally intended it to mean when it was first written. And Revelation is, first of all, about this. It's about the greatness and the glory of God. 
And then it's about calling a group of Christians under persecution in Asia Minor about 95 AD to not compromise who they are and to whom they belong. Friends, that's the what of the book of Revelation. Instead of compromising, John writes this in Revelation 13.10. He says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So let's change direction for a bit. Here at First Press, we talk quite a bit about uh, engaging and impacting uh, our culture around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, folks, if you haven't noticed, some days, sometimes, this can be quite a challenge. Sometimes it doesn't seem like we're making a lot of headway. And while this might be a cause for disappointment, it's not a cause for despair. If our hope is firmly rooted in a new heaven and a new earth, we have far more to rejoice in than to anguish about, even if we can see and anticipate some of the brokenness and the pain our culture has decided, frankly, to wallow in and to celebrate. And I could tell you all many stories, stories from my own family, stories of people that I know in this community and even in this church, people who have been chewed up and spit out by this culture's lies. But here's the thing. Jesus has never wavered in his promise to build his church. And his promise that the gates of hell cannot hold back the body of Christ, it's as true as ever. However, we might have to think about who we are. We might have to think a little bit more our identity, how we see ourselves vis-a-vis our culture around us. And we might also have to rethink a little bit our game plan the way that we desire to engage and impact our culture. You know, I'm not sure if we as Christians in America, I'm not sure if we're ready or naturally inclined or even comfortable about thinking of ourselves in terms of exile. If you read books like Jeremiah and 1 Peter and, yes, Revelation, we see that God's people have been there before. And when you and I are in exile or in a resistance movement, Chasing after power and influence really doesn't work very well as a strategy for sharing the gospel. This thing simply will not astonish non-believers. So the question is, what can you and I do to recapture the attention of our culture without compromising? What we know the Bible says is true. Here's an idea. It's kind of radical. It's never been heard of before. How about you and I seeking to radically love and serve the people around us? Now, I know that's outlandish. I'm teasing. But let's do it like this. Let's do that the way the early Christians did. And this is what they did way back during the era of Domitian and following. They rescued babies that had been abandoned. They'd been pitched over city walls and left to die. They ran into areas that had been afflicted by the plague when everybody else was heading in the opposite direction. They lived lives that pointed to something bigger, something better. What if we lived in such a way that so baffled the people around us that they would just simply have to rethink what they thought about Jesus? Let me ask you all a question, a very serious question. Do you all ever people watch Come on, be honest. Ladies, yeah, right, okay. So I've got an exercise for you. Go to Walmart. 
Better, better, go to an airport terminal and look around. And this is what I want you to see. I want you to see if you can find joy anywhere. (laughs) Probably not. Friends, you and I live in a jaded, stressed out, social media saturated world that's full of sarcasm and cynicism. It's crying out for joy. And you and I have that as a gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Kay Warren says, Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. What if our lives were marked with a joy that exudes confidence and determination and assurance and praise? Would that make us markedly different than the people around us? Folks, the book of Revelation is about patiently and faithfully just getting back to basics. So what are some of the basics of the Christian faith? Well, it's things like prayer and obedient living, loving our enemies, faithfully proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God is breaking into our lives and into our world right now as we speak, yes. It's about things like hope and humility. Biblical humility is simply about serving others by putting their needs and interests above our own. It's treating others the same way we treat them if they were someone important. It doesn't mean we become a doormat. It does mean that we become a servant, even to those who do not deserve it. That's why it's called humility. The world is crying out for hope, too. Real hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is a deep-seated confidence in God's character and sovereignty. It's a lens through which we as Christians evaluate our circumstances, we make our decisions, and determines our actions. Christian hope is built upon the solid conviction that someday, yes, Jesus will return and make all things new. And this certainty becomes the organizing principle of our lives, influencing our priorities, our standards, even our willingness to be persecuted for his name. Don't we claim to know how the book ends? And if that's the case, then do you think that has something to say about the way that you and I should interpret and respond to the dragon's short-term victories and temporary advances. If our sins have been forgiven and our destiny is secured, if we are joint heirs of the kingdom of Jesus and we are certain that he is coming back to banish evil and to make all things new, then despair and panic over however things are going at any moment of the day Despair and panic seem to be inappropriate. It doesn't mean that things will be easy and fun all the time. And yes, it's going to call for a lot of patient endurance and faithfulness on our part. But for those who have received the Lamb, there is joy and there is hope. Because the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah. He will reign forever and ever.
Friends, that's the message of the book of Revelation. And it's the same message for us today as it was for those who originally heard it so many years ago. Would you like to explore membership at First Presbyterian Church? Join us for a new member weekend and discover how we worship and live out our faith with each other and our community. The weekend consists of three sessions taking place on Friday evening, Saturday morning, and Sunday afternoon. You'll enjoy a meal with our senior pastor and other leaders. Learn what we believe and hear about our vision. Child care is available. Register today at firstpressgreenville.org.